Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. So this is Perry Marshall here, and I've got a very interesting guest today. I have Bernard Strauss, and he is a molecular cell biologist from Cambridge University in the UK. And um, he is author of the book, Rethinking Cancer, a new paradigm for the post-genomics era published by MIT Press. And this book somehow got sent to me. And uh, I guess that happens when you're an author and when you're interested in cancer. So I guess they sent it to the right guy. And I thought it was very interesting and it was very refreshing that um, they were taking a, a different view of cancer than what is normal. And Bernard is the editor of this book. And so we, a couple of weeks ago, we had an hour long conversation and I just was very interested to hear where he came from and why he would do something like this. And so here we are. So welcome. <laughs> Hi, welcome, uh, Perry. Uh, good to be on your podcast. Uh, always helping spreading the word, you know, on different views on, on various matters. And uh, it's not only about cancer evolution that we are talking about. I think the main motivation really to compile this book was the fact that there is a ever-growing mismatch between what is considered basically the standard view of our understanding of cancer and how mainstream cancer research explains and treats cancer and the growing number of results, basically, a, a body of work that existed for decades in parallel to the mainstream, showing that the mainstream paradigm cannot be as efficient in explaining cancer and clearly not as efficient in treating cancer as, as is proposed by the mainstream paradigm. So people in the cancer field are now sort of waking up to that discrepancy between what the mainstream understanding of cancer is, what is the sort of cartoon-like causal chain of events that lead to cancer and how you need to interfere with that to treat it, as opposed to what people are saying for decades and almost a century, really, other opinions, how cancer originates and how it can be explained. Uh, have accumulated. And, and it's kind of a, a puzzle, really, for, for cancer scientists being in the field. You know, you, you have to basically be on either one of these two sides. You have to say, well, okay, I trust the, the mainstream explanation and I do my work basically inspired by that and, and structured by that mainstream idea or not. And the question as a sort of layperson, as a patient coming to a cancer doctor is really, how can that be? How can that be, you know, with the medical condition so prevalent and, you know, so important and so much in the media, how can it be at all that there is these two different views or more than one view to, to something that needs to be treated in patients every day? So, so it's kind of a puzzle. 
So Bernard, how did you like go back in time? Mm. How did it come to be that you would be somebody who would look at these two things and go, well, I am definitely on this other side. I, I am not buying into this yeah. view <laughs> of things. There's a whole background that primed the pump. Oh, yes. I mean, that, so to make this decision in, in personally in my biography, if you want, it has has a sort of a long-term and a short-term background, really, uh, from how my scientific career has evolved. So I have to say, so I come from Austria, where when in the days I have studied biology and medicine back then in Austria, 25 years ago now, it was culturally and by chance, it happens to be, you know, in Vienna, a scientifically rich environment. So there is a lot of theory-rich tradition in Vienna. So, you know, not, not you know, it's not an accident that people like Schrodinger and Boltzmann, you know, and Mach and all these thinkers came out of this environment. So teachers at our university were, were quite aware of that, you know, rich theory and complexity-inspired theory-rich background. And and they passed that on to us as biologists when we studied, you know, basic phenomena of life. So that was one of the influences that I have. So I have a sort of non-reductionist training background, if you want, which is kind of rare because reductionism is the kind of cool thing that gives quick results and, you know, and, and technically a lot of progress has been made in the past 30 years where with a reductionist approach, with very successful techniques, you can really push out results on Mars. And to just for anybody that doesn't know the terminology, reductionism is just the way of viewing the world that the whole is the sum of the parts. Got exactly, car, yes. I've got a car, it's got spark plugs, it's got cylinders, it's got, and wow. if I understand how the parts work, I understand how the whole works. And like, there you go. So maybe you can help people understand what is a non-reductionist view and why would that make any sense? As you say, I mean, a reductionist view is also a view where you deliberately choose to explain things by one thing usually. You find their one cause. And in order to be able to do that, you have to reduce whatever phenomenon you're studying to a degree that it's then sort of dissected into little parts and pieces. And these pieces are then the ones from which you select one that is the most important one to cause the phenomenon that you want to explain. So I always has existed in parallel science though, is, is where people who thought, well, we know that if you look at anything more complicated, like even if you look at a car, a car is not just one part of the engine block or it's your gearbox or anything a car is only the total sum of its parts but once you put a person in the car the car becomes part of say a human society and also the phenomena appear in a car that would never appear in a car uh, that stands in your driveway say for example traffic jams and we would not be able to explain a traffic jam in a city every morning just by looking at how the engine works. Yeah. And that kind of the sort of metaphor. And of course, it was very obvious to everybody studying life that life looks quite complicated or mysterious in a way and, and not easily reducible to very simple parts because we didn't even know the parts until very recently. There was a, and still we are discovering new parts every year uh, that haven't been discovered before in a cell, for example. So, so there's this 
issue that anything that's complex is possibly existing because of its complexity and interaction of all the parts simultaneously all the time. Because otherwise, if these interactions would not happen, then the whole system would not exist. And of course, to that, there is the time dimension as well, despite getting more and more sort of philosophical here or, or abstract. But if there wouldn't be a time component to a complicated system, so there would be no growth, it would, you know, no development, no variation would exist. So the fact that different states of something complicated, complex, can be maintained for a certain amount of time and then change might happen. And then because it was maintained for some time, there's a memory of the past structure and then some change or some influence from the outside happens. And complex systems use or say non-reductionist approaches to science always have existed as well. And it was a pure historical fluke in a way that we happen to end up now in a still highly reductionist phase of science at the moment. All the while other people are presenting alternative views which work not even just the same, but better, in fact, to explain something complex. So it's a historical a pendulum situation, like with many historical trends, you know, some years one is up and some other years the other. But with cancer, it's definitely, and cancer research as such, it is definitely that it is on a reductionist track for at least 100 years. And the reductionist track view people, they have dominated the field. And despite the fact that others have, you know, pointed quite clearly to other ways of looking at cancer. So, so that's where we are. And that's why we are where we are. Well, I might offer an illustration. So Dennis Noble is referenced quite a few times in this book. Yes. He's one of my prize judges. And, and Dennis has this idea called biological relativity. And he says, there's no privilege level of causation in biology. And so where he figured this out was, he's the guy that figured out the cardiac rhythm, I think in 1960, that made yeah. the tastemakers possible. And like a watch, like I think everybody kind of knows how a gear watch works or like a digital watch, there's a crystal and the crystal vibrates and then chips subdivide the vibrations into minutes and seconds and the watch just counts. And it starts with the vibration and it just goes in one linear direction and it counts out. And Dennis found out the heart does not work that way at all. A heart has multiple feedback loops. And so a way of illustrating non-reductionist thinking is if I said, so Bernard, how many things affect the speed of your heartbeat? Hmm. Like, well, a pretty girl walking by, running up and down the stairs, or something on TV, or the temperature goes up, or the temperature goes down, or somebody pours cold water on your back, or like, any of these things could change your heartbeat because the heartbeat is part of a whole bunch of systems. And what Dennis is saying is that when you have something that's based on circular causation and the circles go in a hundred different directions, it's not possible to ever say, well, the heartbeat starts here. Exactly. He's saying all of biology is like this. It's, you cannot reduce it down to, oh, and so back to cancer, the track we've been on for the last, I don't know, 
20, 30, 40 years has been, well, there's some genetic mutation. And if we could find out where that is and fix it or stop it, then cancer would stop. Now, Bernard, what does a non-reductionist view say to that? Yeah, so just to um, clarify sort of the traditional view, yeah. As you say, 30, 40 years is a bit longer now, at least 50 years. It's the public, it's the, the accepted dogma is really that it is the DNA changes in a cell that cause cancer. And what, what is meant by that is that you need to have a change at the DNA level first. And then because of that, the cell changes behavior and produces all the behaviors that a cancer cell has in in the tissue environment where it should be normally be controlled and behave in a tissue specific way and not in the way that cancer sets behave. And so far, the other quite important additional point about this simplistic view of cancer was that the cells would be the same. So that were not only the DNA change that would, they would, it would be the single DNA change that would be propagated and make all bad cells, if you want, the same bad type of cells. And that was the picture, the cartoon-like picture. You imagine a mass of same cells. They are cancer cells now. They do cancer things in a healthy tissue. And all of this is turned on its head pretty much for the past 30, 40 years by data that clearly show that cells in a tumor, when we look at what's happening inside a tumor, when doctors take it out, the surgeon takes it out, it's quite clear that a cell listens pretty much always to the environment it is in and then responds in some way to it. But this environment in a body, in a tissue, in a healthy tissue is of course other cells. And what happens in the cancer context really is the breakdown of communication between healthy cells and the cell that is considered a cancer cell. And the debate is whether the cancer cell is actually a qualitatively different cell to the other body cells. It just does something different, but it's perfectly able to perform all the functions of a normal cell as well. It just does it at the wrong time, at the wrong place. So the systemic view would be, or the non-reductionist view, is that you can only explain any cell behavior, really, by all the simultaneously existing interactions that this cell has with its physical, chemical, cellular environment, because that is the signaling input that the cell needs to then obtain a state that it defines what it is, whether it's a liver cell or it's a kidney cell and so on. And these feedback loops that continuously have to happen in a tissue, in a healthy tissue, were not considered in the standard theory. They, the, the arrow of causality, if you want, has always been depicted as going from the gene, from the DNA, something happens there, to the cell behavior. And now because the DNA has changed, the cell behaves differently. And that explains why it's behaving differently. It becomes a cancer cell. But what in actual fact happens is any signal or any perturbation in a complex system that enters a cell can be interpreted in various ways by the cell. So the change in behavior is completely dependent on what is read into the system. So a transformation event where you transform a normal cell to a so-called cancer cell would be one 
where all the signals that it perceives somehow change and we don't know what it is. And it could be a toxin, it could be your behavior, you, you eat something for 20 years because you like it and you know, it's telling your stomach cells that's not good, you know, that's something that messes up their connections with other cells, for example, and then, hey, the cell behaves differently because it perceives a perturbation all the time and then it transforms and behaves like a cancer cell and, and produces a structure that shouldn't be there. So the arrow of causality in that sort of systemic view is in some way the other way around, but at the same time, as complex systems are always in circular loops, you know, the output is a result of a circular feedback, positive or negative feedback loop with the environment all the time. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist in the first place. So, so seeing the inside out and the outside in view of cell behavior is really crucial to understand any phenomenon of life. And in this case, cancer as a phenomenon of life is not an, an exception in any way. Okay, so point of view number one is cancer is caused by this one thing. Point of view number two, cancer be, could be caused by a thousand things. It's pretty easy to understand why people go, you know, I think I kind of like door number one better, right? I mean, isn't that, that's the battle you're up against. People want <laughs> explanations. It's not a matter of, ease of, a, of the approach, <laughs> really. <laughs> so, but it's a very human nature reflex, I think, that no scientist is really immune against to rather choose the sort of so-called more elegant, simpler, clearer, you know, explanations. So I think historically that's always happened. So it's, it's but what we are up against is, is a completely equally accepted uh, view and, and not only view, but the whole field of science that's studied complex systems for over hundred years, where there's tools in place and theoretical structures and theories and concepts that can very well deal with the fact that something is circular and reciprocal and complex. And we just haven't applied this to cancer simply because these sort of people were not really linked up with the cancer field. And this is just about now happening, which is a good thing. And a lot of people with theoretical backgrounds in physics where they deal with complex dynamical systems mm -hmm. are now entering the cancer field and, and making it aware of the fact, hey, cancer is you know, not different from any other complex system. So we need to look at cancer that way. And that makes things less clear, but equally explainable. And it also leads to quite clear action steps that you can implement to deal with cancer. And that goes to the background that you talked about. I'm from Austria. There's a lot of people who approached very complex problems with appropriately designed tools and methods. And maybe they're in uh, physics and maybe they're in chemistry and maybe they're in economics. But like what you're saying is it's not like we don't know how to deal with these things. Absolutely. We, yeah. we just need to bring those tools over. Yes. Am I understanding you right? Absolutely. And that's why we also chose that title. I mean, it's not an original title. Other people have, you know, uh, published papers and there's a movie from the 70s called Rethinking Cancer. But we wanted to make this point. It needs 
theoretical conceptual thinking, if you want, to look with existing thinking structures at a problem that hasn't been looked at with these methods. And what has happened in the past 30, 40 years, I would say, where it became more and more obvious that cancer is not so simple, that a lot of techniques from say, you know, more advanced statistics and other methods where mathematicians and physicists were dealing with enormous amounts of genomics and DNA data, these people have then started collaborating and carried over a sort of background thinking into the biology or cancer field where modeling and complexity of systems was not so much anymore a threat, but they could, to the biologists, but they had now the tools at hand to deal with ever more complex DNA related problems and realize suddenly, oh, hey, if that's the case, maybe all of the cancer explanation needs to get an overhaul and, and really be looked at with dynamical systems analysis tools. So tell me more about how you, like your personal story <laughs> of where did you come from and how did you find your way into becoming an editor of a cancer book? Yeah, so my personal story to that book has two parts. Uh, one part is I'm a cell biologist. I worked on cell division for two decades, even more than two decades now. Different aspects of how cells divide in developing embryos and organoid systems now where we grow little parts of organs in a dish, etc., etc. And as such, studying the division process it occurred to me like 10, 15 years ago already that we have in our grant proposals always this sentence where we say, yeah, yeah, this research on cell division will be very important because of cancer. And almost every grant proposal had to end with that sentence. It was sort of taken as a rule that we had to follow because that's what would give us the money. But then, and it was at the same time, the time where people thought, if that's the case, then we have the chemistry to stop cell division in a more clever way than just with chemotherapy, then let's do that. So this was happening at the same time. And turning out very quickly that these so-called cell cycle inhibitors were not very effective in the clinic. So scientifically, I got suspicious and said, well, hey, what is really the role of cell division in cancer? Because the classic image is that of identical bad cells that just proliferate all the time. And that creates this enormous mass and that will destroy the tissue. Yeah. But if you look at a, say, cross-section through a tumor, it turns out only a very small proportion of cells are dividing at any given time. And they're doing it only in a certain region, and there's not much division happening in other parts in most of the tissue that you find in the tumor. Huh. I noticed, and then I looked a little bit into the literature, so what's the, what's the issue here? And it's kind of accepted now, well, we know that proliferation is not the only thing. And I'm a trained also uh, in my, my studies, uh, I'm a trained histologist, so I used to teach medical students in histology, what is basically the structure, the fine substructures of tissues and what cells are in there and how every organ is split up from these uh, specific types of cells that are specific to each organ. And so 
I had a visual understanding of how a tumor looks like and how this could relate to a pattern of division. And it was quite clear to me that tumor tissue looks disorganized. That's the main feature of it. And if you find a few areas where there's increased division, there is more to the whole cancer problem than just the division. There's the disorganization that needs to be explained as well. And it's not just the sort of displacement of other cells by proliferating cells. If we look at early stage tumors, the, the disorganization is in the tissue there already before there is high levels of proliferation. So there's a clear two issue problem here. So we have, I found out, well, okay, proliferation is not maybe the main issue. There's something to do with organization. And then I parked the problem scientifically. I thought, ah, there are some issues there. And then I didn't really, in my own work, I didn't follow that up and, and kept it in the back of my mind. Then the second part of, apart from noticing a scientific discrepancy here in explanation of the actual structure that you see in a tumor. But the second thing that happened was I, I was involved for many years in Cambridge in the Garden Institute, which is a basic research institute in developmental biology and, and cancer research. I was involved in what's called here public engagement or outreach where we engage with the public and explain to them what we do, uh, what's the research, and also due to the fact that we are funded by public money, so we have to uh, reach out and discuss to lay people what we're doing. And so I set up some programs to basically motivate teenagers to study science and had a program uh, for a day where we show them around the institute, show them some cool techniques, explain them a little bit about the history of science and from my own background about cell division. And then, of course, cell division, because everybody connects cell division with cancer, started talking about cancer. Initially, the first two years or so, I gave them basically the standard textbook view, telling them, yeah, there's some genes that mutate and then the mutation spreads and because of that proliferation increases, even though at that point they knew already better, that's not the case, proliferation is important and so on and so forth. And then doing that for a while, I really got thinking, well, I'm in fact influencing young people to study some science and tell them some story, some narrative about cancer that I'm not so convinced myself uh, anymore. And I better stop that and I better get going and look and read up on what I really think about how cancer works. And that's what I did. So I spent a year or two beside my work, just reading up on sort of other explanatory models, how cancer can be explained, how it works, et cetera, et cetera. And then I started to tell a different story uh, that was not reductionist, was more towards the system view of cancer and explaining also to these teenagers that cancer is not a problem that can be fixed with single genetic drugs and uh, built my narrative on my reading of the sort of other literature that also always has existed. So how do you, like use your imagination a little bit. I mean, you, you feel free to speculate. How do you think this actually makes it easier to treat cancer rather than harder, given that the picture you're painting is a lot more complex? Well, the, the problem you're having, and, and that's why the book with this title, Rethinking Cancer, 
brings together people from quite different technical areas to show that once we change that view that cancer is this unidirectional gene mutation to cancer phenotype uh, causality, then we can do a lot of proper research and look for different things that are important. And I think that's the problem at the moment. The problem is we know now that it is more complex, but at the same time, we haven't looked for the simple solutions that we can find within that system to interfere with the system because we haven't understood the system in the first place well enough. So for example, I mean, one big issue is always that we say that the tumor is a perturbation and we attack the tumor to treat cancer. So we take it out. But we have no idea how the tissue actually maintains itself continuously to prevent tumors. And if we would know more about other units or other, let's say, relevant interactions in a larger structure like a tissue, then we would find probably equally simple solutions to treat cancer simply because maybe a very simple molecular cue, or it could be a interaction between a larger group of cells is simply unknown at the moment. But um, once complex systems thinking is finding greater acceptance in the field, then we can look for different units in the cancer problem that are relevant for the cancer phenotype, for the cancer emergence. Uh, and at the moment, that's not the case. You stimulate a whole bunch of thoughts here because you know, I, most of my work is in business, and business is all complex systems. And everything is 80-20. And in the 80-20 system, 1% of the causes produce 50% of the effects. That's how complex systems are. In a perfectly linear system, it's like, well, you need 100% of the crystal. You need 100% of the chip that divides the crystal. Like in a clock, it's like everything's 100%, right? But in a complex system, so what you're suggesting is there may be actually very simple things. Yes. And you're reminding me of a conversation I had with Michael Levin, who I interviewed on this podcast a little over a year ago. He says, the question is not, why do we have cancer? It's why isn't everything cancer? It's absolutely exactly. remarkable that you and I have 10 or 100 billion cells. They're all doing pretty much exactly what they're supposed to be doing. What makes them do that? You were kind of alluding to that. Can you elaborate more on that question? Yeah, I mean, one of the conceptual problems that the cancer field has at the moment is it has never looked above and beyond the single cell, really. Mm. And it's a little bit like a problem that physics had, say, uh, end of the 19th century, early 20th century, where there was everything appeared to be figured out by following basically a Newtonian track of thinking. And then, hey, you know, quantum mechanics came along. And I think biology is in a similar situation at the moment where we, we had focused so much on the single cell and we have really uh, uncovered an enormous wealth of, of knowledge on this. Nothing wrong with that. 
But because of that being so successful, we have completely forgotten about the approaches that people had all the way into the 1970s, where they were looking at larger units. How does integration happen? What defines a unit? And of course, you get into this sort of overlapping of, of circular feedbacks, et cetera, where you say the units say has never really a boundary because there's another unit that envelopes it and there's another unit that surrounds it. And then we have whatever, the climate of the earth that enables everything that happens. You know what I mean? Yeah. But say, but say from a less philosophical perspective, simply down to the cancer question, cancer scientists have never really explored how do larger units within a single organ, for example, interact with each other? You have no knowledge of this. Is there, there may be approaches wow. in thinking, but how, say, livers and kidneys and every other organ is always uh, composed of repetitive units of structures that are bigger than a single cell, of course. So that's how we can distinguish them, right? If you look into your gut or into into your lungs, you, you can clearly, every histologist, once you get a cross-section through any organ, you can, re, you can recognize the organ exactly because it has repetitive sort of multiplied units. But how these units as such interact is completely not studied. It's very, or is a very uh, niche um, activity in some basic research lab somewhere maybe, but nobody made the link to disease here. So to figure out how, say, a, a particular, you know, alveoli in the lungs, so these little uh, blobs where a gas exchange happens. In any branch of along your airways, there are thousands of those, and they in some way or form have to interact because this interaction is what gives them their lung identity that makes that the lung functions. And they have not really studied anything structurally above the single cell or a few cell level. So we have no idea how integrity of something healthy in a body or normal, as we would say, is actually maintained by communication above the single cell communication level. So here's a, tell me if this analogy would fit. We have a McDonald's and I have the employee manual for the French fry dunker, and I have the employee manual for the guy that makes the hamburgers, and employee manual for the milkshakes, but I don't have the employee manual for the manager who makes sure they're all doing their stuff. I understand that there's a whole bunch of McDonald's all over the place. I don't know how somebody who owns 10 McDonald's, I don't know how they manage the 10 McDonald's. And I don't know how the supply chain works with all of the factories that make hamburger buns. And mm. so I have this very granular understanding. I understand exactly how to dunk a French fry. I know exactly how to cook a hamburger, but I don't know how to get the hamburger. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, that's a good analogy. Yes, it's exactly that. And we have to say historically, People in the early 20th century have thought about this. And they were, you know, when physiology started to develop, that was what physiologists did. They did experiments on larger animals to try to exactly figure out this problem. And a lot of basic knowledge came out of these early work. And they were looking into large, 
long-range interactions as well, not only within uh, a single organ, but also how is that one organ then integrated with the rest of the body? And that's how we learned about hormones, et cetera, et cetera. And that's something that is just about being acknowledged by the cancer field that that may be an issue, but we still haven't worked on it. So that as a field, there is no sort of rediscovery of that old notion of other higher level units that we need to find out and study, basically. So could we say molecular biology, what is that? It's where we get down to literally things like a DNA molecule, which is, you know, this atom and this atom strung together. Molecular biology, which is studying things at that level, has been so successful, it has become a victim of its own success because everybody wants to go down to this level, whereas there are much, much, much higher levels of much larger systems, far, far bigger than molecules. And I, I'm thinking of, um, Azra Raja, Raza just put out a blog post mm. yesterday, and she was talking about, there's a theory with a lot of support for it that the precursor to a cancer cell is a polyploid giant cell and that they think it may merge with a white blood cell, which gives it the ability to travel anywhere it wants to go because it has an all access pass to the whole body. And this is, this is what she said that, that you stimulated me to think about. She said, the first person to suggest this was in 1911 and he only had a microscope. Yes. And yes. she said, that's why he figured it out because he only had a microscope. If he'd had all this other stuff and he thought he could get down to the molecular level of a cell, he would have never seen this larger pattern. So Bernard, is that like, is this kind of the gist of rethinking cancer of what your book is about? Yeah, so the book basically was an attempt to bring concepts or new ideas from four areas together where, where all of these need addressing really and all of these need to be promoted in basic cancer research as conceptual building blocks that people can work on yeah. and exactly these sort of discoveries that you are mentioning would fall into this category of the cellular mechanisms of uh, carcinogenesis. How, how does it actually start? What is the first cancer cell? And what we want to promote with that book was really a change in thinking, which means theories, and there's good examples from physics, and we bring examples in the book, how physics has stayed in the past with similar problems where they couldn't figure something out. And by changing the granularity of how actually are we subdividing the problem makes a big impact on what sort of solutions you can find. You cannot explain the phenomena of water, how it has ice and whatever different forms of existence on this planet by just knowing everything about water molecules. It's just not possible. But physicists figured out we can, we run into a problem here and we, for a hundred years now, we know that we need to just change the unit that's causally relevant and have other theories. So theory is important really to drive cancer research. And then the other aspect we, talked about complex systems and how to analyze this in a single cell. There's a lot of good work out now that uses genomics data, uses gene expression data that we have to exactly make these points that the single cell 
is really one of these prime examples of being a complex system that can only exist because of the interactions that it has between all the parts all the time and the environment. And the conceptually, it's not about so much about finding a new single cause for cancer, because exactly as you said before at the beginning, there is no privileged level of causality in any phenomenon of life. So cancer being one of them uh, is no exception. And what needs to be done, I think, is with a more open-minded view of how you interpret phenomena of life and using all the tools we have got for over 100 years of complex systems research and the knowledge we have got from the microenvironment field that, that taught us a lot, how does this reciprocal arrow of causation that goes all the time from the environment in the tissue into single cells and out again, how this works on a molecular level, and we know a lot of this now. This sort of complex systems views need then to be applied in very practical experiments to ask very specific questions. I think that's where we want to make this book actually a, a call to action, really, because we don't know many things. We assume we know, for example, as we take, go back to this previous example, we don't know how larger units within the body interact with each other. And it's very likely that health is actually something that needs to be looked at in this way, because we have no idea which interactions define that a tissue stays healthy and always fends off perturbations that can cause cancer. And as you said before, I mean, this is a, a quote that Mina Bissell published in the 80s, where she said, why is there not more cancer? The question is not, why do we have cancer? The question is, why do we not have cancer all the time? And not so much on a global systems level, but the question is simply, what is it that prevents cancer all the time? It's in some sort of active process. It's going to be complex. It's a, uh, tissue level or organism level constant activity that we do not understand. And it's this sort of things that need to be researched. We have not really much data on this. And I think one sort of industry driven sometimes uh, trend is this sort of personalized medicine where you can go to a company and pay a subscription and they take a blood sample every three months. And then, you know, Maybe they discover half a year before you get cancer, some change that indicated that you got cancer. Yeah. So it's quite clear that we need to go that early um, because at the moment prevention really has also, Dr. Raza always says, I mean, we have to go early because we don't have anything better for the late stage at the moment. Mm -hmm. Late stage cancer is really the, the problem that's not solved and simply because we don't know where should we interact in a way that, that can reverse the problem? So Bernard, last question and we're done. I want you to dream a little bit, imagine a little bit. It's 25 years from now and enough people read books like Thinking Cancer and similar books, okay? And we made a turn. Yes. Then what happened? What was the result of this other kind of thinking? Well, my guess is that we will treat cancer with an intervention in the body that is outside of the cancer. So it's quite well known in experimental systems and also from the clinical literature that cancer can reverse and disappear, which is also structurally the 
a big mystery if you just think about it. You need to undo the very complicated structural mess that a tumor is. And by the way, maybe not so random and maybe cancers in fact do have quite intricate regular structures that we need to understand. It's a big gap. We have no idea yet at the moment how cancers grow in three dimensions, a big uh, open question field that needs to be worked on. But what I'm thinking is we will figure out how tissues maintain health in some level of detail that allows us to interfere with the whole of the body to either prevent early stage cancer or reverse early stage cancer. And we have no idea what that can be because we haven't started really looking at this. And people like Michael Levin point to, into the direction that there is other units and other interactions between cells that we had no real understanding how this is important for health and maintaining tissues and fighting cancer potentially on a continuous level. So my thinking is we learn a lot from asking very specific questions how organs maintain themselves with a view of that it is the whole of the organism that maintains the organ, but we need to figure out what is it, what are the interactions that we can then interfere with or support in the body that help suppress the emergence of cancer. Well, I just want to appreciate how many really interesting open questions that you have brought up today. Right. So like, for example, you said, we barely have any understanding of how cancer creates a three dimensional structure. And maybe Absolutely. there are that maybe there are relatively straightforward things that are, are why does it reverse? We know that it reverses. It's like unwinding. a very, So I just want to appreciate you for being more interested in questions than necessarily always just the answers. Well, Bernard, thank you for doing this book, Rethinking Cancer, MIT Press. Bernard Strauss, thanks for spending time today. Thank you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. 